Um, as you'll notice, um, the title of my presentation has changed um, to Negotiating Sight from the Start, Stop, Start Experiences of Women Riding Bicycles, and I've added an extra author um, because Anne has actually worked very closely with me on this project and we've been talking through um, findings as we've gone, and I thought that her input um, was important to recognise in the uh, process. Okay, what I want to do is talk firstly about the uh, a conjunction of observations that actually led me to do the research um, that is called Women Returning to Cycling, or women, as I started to call it later in the project, Women Returning to Bike Riding. Um, so I'll talk about that to start with, and then I want to talk about the method as I planned it and the method as it happened. And then I'll talk a little bit um, about my findings. What I'm presenting today is, um, is basically, it's not actually what I was imagining would come out of this research, but I thought it was actually quite interesting and worthwhile as a little side paper to the, to the research. Um, okay, so, so um, then, then I'll end up uh, with uh, some co concluding comments on that. Okay, as um, Tim stated at the outset, we are quite aware that in countries with high levels of cycling, there is a, a far more uh, um, even uh, number of or rates of cycling amongst men and women. Um, and what we often find is we get these comparisons on a, on a national and international scale uh, between um, cycling in different different countries or in different cities within the one country. But I've been interested over the last few years in looking at intra-urban differences in cycling. And what, of course, I've found is that um, this, is, this is the city of Adelaide, which my research is concentrated on. And, of course, even though um, Australia-wide we have very low levels of cycling um, from 1 to 1.5% for the journey to work, because that's the only reliable data in Australia on cycling, and even that's a bit dodgy because it's taken in the middle of winter, the, the census, we, when probably, you know, your avid cyclists are going to be out there riding to work, but probably not most people. Um, or, or there will be um, a, a discrepancy between that and, and summer. But we've never taken the census in summer, so we really don't know. Um, okay, and 20% of, um, of those cyclists are women. So we've basically got one in five cyclists uh, for the journey to work being women. Um, but what I've found in looking at, at the intra-urban um, areas, and I, I compared Melbourne with Adelaide, and what I found was at a, at a fairly fine spatial scale, so the statistical local area, um, at, a, at a reasonably fine spatial scale. Um, so this, this spot here, I should use the is about 30,000 people within um, an SLA, so I'm going to about 30,000 people there. There's difficulties in using Australian census data to go down to a higher spatial scale than that. But what I actually found was that, of course, those, those national and international observations actually work at that fine spatial scale. So in areas in Adelaide where we have high levels of cycling, and here it's, it's only just over 4%, 4.5%. In Melbourne, in some SMAs, it's up to 10%. In those areas, we have a far more even gender balance. So um, in Adelaide, we're still not doing that well, but at least in those SLAs with high levels 
um, of cycling. About 30% of women are cycling in Melbourne. It's up around 40%. Um, so we're nearly getting to that, that even level. So that was um, observation one, that we need to actually think carefully about the intra-urban level. Okay, quite often, um, what we, we're all familiar with these stories around um, the impediments to cycling, safety from motor vehicle traffic, motor behaviour, um, and so on and so forth, level of organisation and carrying stuff. Um, and what we actually see within, within Adelaide is that um, when we look at differences in cycling, these areas here, we have distance operating alongside, I think, of um, households. And, and of course, as women, you know, 30 or 40 years of, of um, looking at um, women's cycling or women's travel patterns has kind of told us that women have particular kinds of journeys given the gender of, um, of household responsibilities. But in Adelaide here, what you can see is that's the inner area, that's the CBD, and around here, um, these dark areas, they've got distance, um, and they've also, this is around 30, um, or these outer areas are 15 to 40 kilometres away from the CBD, but there are also those areas where we have significant um, um, households with children under the age or under the age of 15. So what we've kind of got operating here is that we've got a lot of um, we've got longer distances in these outer areas, coupled with um, coupled with particular household characteristics, and so. Even though we've got, we have higher concentrations of cycling in the inner city and in the inner suburbs, um, and even around to the middle suburbs here, we've also that's coupled alongside of households, different kind of households. So you know, I was interested in those differences that were going on there. Um, I suppose. What we're also seeing in some of the literature is this, um, and what we're seeing in a lot of the programs being offered, is that we kind of need to make, in Australia, or probably here in the UK too, and the, the US, we need to make you know, Australians more like the Dutch, or more like the Danish. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do that by actually having um, education programs, teaching women how to shop by bicycle. Um, and having segregated cycleways because you look at the Netherlands, you can look at Australia, what's the big difference? They've got segregated cycleways, we haven't, that must be the solution. And so, um, you know, you can even go out and make observations of where are women cycling. They're cycling on the, on the, on the pathways, therefore women must prefer the pathways without kind of looking at the broader context. And what worries me about some of this research is that we start to fix women as risk averse, as wanting segregated cycleways. So we start to actually essentialise these characteristics of women as cyclists. Um, we start to get a gendering of cycling practices and infrastructure. And of course, 
once you actually say, oh, we need special infrastructure for women, well, of course, in liberal societies, anyone that needs anything special really should be catered. Well, there's questions around catering to their needs. Um, why can't we just be normal? Um, okay, so we're also, we're also failing to challenge the street context in which that takes place. So we actually simply accept that in, you know, in Australian cities we have um, uh, arterial roads with high volume, um, fast, heavy traffic, and that's taken as normal. And so we don't actually, by opting for the segregated cycleways, we can then avoid all of those questions about what our cities should be like. Um, and of course I've said about the negative connotations. So this led me, this conjunction of observations led me to think, well, what is it for those women who do actually come back to cycling? Okay, there are fewer, fewer um, you know, it's a, it's a small percentage and they're concentrated in particular areas and the areas in which they are concentrated are actually areas that, um, that have high volumes of traffic. So it's inner urban, inner suburban areas. So on the one hand, we're being told women are um, risk averse, they don't like cycling in highly congested areas, and yet, lo and behold, that's exactly where we've got the highest levels of women cycling. So I wanted to find out what was going on. For women who did actually um, return to cycling, what was going on for them? For those who actually braved it, and, and took up riding again, um, how did they do that? How did they address the impediments that might be, that they might be confronted with and so on and so forth? And I was interested um, in tracking a group of women. The initial study was to track six women over a four month period of time and look at using helmet mounted video cameras doing an interview every month, getting them to keep a diary and to track how they actually changed, how their experiences changed. And I was hoping with the helmet mounted video cameras that I'd, I'd pick up different paths that they took as they got better or felt more confident with their cycling and so on. But I discovered that um, I have a problem with watching the motion from helmet mounted video cameras and um, it didn't work as well as I was hoping. So it, it didn't have sort of the effect because to be perfectly honest, I couldn't watch the whole video all the way through. Because um, some of them took them for several hours and you can imagine they're over four months. So we sort of had the video going in the background and the women would be talking their way through the stories and pointing out to me saying, look, at that point, and then, then explain something that happened and we'd stop the video and we'd talk about it about that event. So it was useful, not the way I imagined in the first instance, but what I did find was that if there were an enormous number of women who actually responded to the call for women returning to cycling. So instead of my imagined six, I had nearly 50 women within the first two weeks of putting out this call, and I thought, oh my gosh, what will I do? Um, and even though I didn't really have the resources to um, interview all those women, I actually decided that better to broaden the study, make it slightly different, um, rather than to then try and do 
another similar sort of exercise 12 months or two years down the track. So I ended up with um, about 49 respondents and I categorised them. And I actually was quite surprised at how widely you can interpret returning to cycling. And um, we'll find that as we go through. So basically, um, uh, that's pretty much how it happened. Uh, my respondents, they were across the age ranges from their 20s to their 70s. Mainly they were in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So I had about 10 respondents in those. Um, you can tell I was brought up in the um, geography department that we do lots of stats, um, or numbers at least, not stats. Okay, the distances um, I'm talking about, as I explained, in a suburb, um, in a suburban area is about five kilometres, middle suburbs, and I had 15 respondents from there. Middle suburbs is five to 15 kilometres from the CBD, and I had 17 respondents from there. Outer suburbs, 15 to 40 kilometres. Adelaide is around about 90 kilometres from north to south, and around about 30 kilometres across from west to west. Um, and, um, and then we also had some uh, people from peri-urban areas and some Rimians, people from interstate regional um, centres in Melbourne and, and um, Sydney that I thought, what the heck, I may as well collect the data while I can. Um, okay, and as much as I really um, have trouble with categorising cycling because I think we actually miss a lot when we actually create these fairly hard categories and, and it's a problem with that. But this kind of demonstrates, I suppose, that in the inner and middle suburbs we've actually got a lot of women. So that's up to that 15 kilometres, most of our women were engaged in utility kind of cycling. But there was certainly this broader range of cycling in there. Okay, and I found, again, um, just to handle the data, I've got these, um, I've got these, um, our bicycling histories. Um, what I found was there was one group of women who um, cycled from, uh, they hadn't cycled for a period of 30 or more years. So they stopped as children and then started again about 30 years later. There were those that cycled occasionally for many years, but didn't really establish a routine, so they might cycle on holidays. There were those who cycled routinely for several years um, and then stopped, and then cycled routinely again and then stopped along the way. And then those who actually were still cycling, when they rang me up and said, oh, well, I'm returning to cycling. And when we actually went through the interview, it, it turned out that they weren't doing the kind of cycling that they saw as real cycling. And so they were still using their bike to go to the local shops, but they weren't riding to work, so that wasn't cycling. And so they had very definite ideas according to their routine and regularity of what they saw as cycling. Um, okay, so as kids, most women started cycling between the ages of five and 12. And there was that whole thing about cycling as being that entertainment. Um, it's something you did with your your um, friends, with your um, and you actually building social relations through that journey. The reasons, I suppose, that many women talked about stopping cycling 
was um, I was surprised at how many women stopped at the moment that they moved house. And I thought that that was something that hadn't actually come out in a lot of studies. It was suddenly moving house, moving from country to the city, they actually stopped cycling. Um, alternatively, they actually stopped around secondary school. And it wasn't so much because their peers weren't cycling, although that was part of it, but it was, uh, it was about carrying books to school, it was about distances, and it was about, you know, shifting demands on their time. When they came back to cycling, uh, in their 20s and 30s, it was often around building relationships. So even though there was that whole other lot of stuff in there around fitness, around health, and those kinds of things, the, the thing that really came out strongly was, oh, my housemate was cycling, my boyfriend at the time was cycling, um, or I got involved with people who were doing triathlon, etc., etc. So there was, there was very much a sense of this was a moment where building relationships was kind of at the core, but not the only, but part of a conjunction of circumstances of coming back to cycling. Um, there, was, there were many women who wanted to teach their kids how to cycle. So when they had kids, they actually took up cycling again so they could bike to the park, bike to school with their kids. Um, and I was very surprised at that. Um, so as Prue said, and then she discovered, um, you know, she took up cycling so she could um, ride the kids to school. And then she discovered that bikes had gears and wasn't that fantastic. So she couldn't tell the whole thing. But, um, but she really um, got back into it again. Um, more likely, though, this was the moment when women stopped cycling. So those who had taken up again in their 20s, they were going to stop with kids. And a lot of it is, even, even for those who actually had kids, um, um, who tried taking kids to school with, you know, seats and all the rest of it, it was, they were simply terrified of what may happen to their children on those bikes. So this was a key moment. A lot of it was about, a lot of that giving up at this time was not just about trying to manage the kids on bikes, but also about, um, about the time constraints as more children came along and the time constraints. So thinking about that um, uh, map of Adelaide where you've got distances as well as multiple tasks to fit in, this actually became a real issue for many women. So they eventually, if they didn't give up because of the traffic, they gave up because they, they simply couldn't manage it at that time. And so it fell out of routine. Um, okay. In older age groups, many women took up cycling again for fitness and health. And this was, even though the building relationships was still in there, it was very much around um, wanting a body that would last. So as Meredith said, I had a little joke with myself. Um, I said, Meredith, you could go out and buy yourself a bike frame or a Zimmer frame. Um, which one are you going to get? And she talked about it in terms of, she was in her early 60s. She had another 20 years to go. She wanted to make sure that they were a good 20 years and that she was, she was going to be fit and healthy around that. Again, of course, having partners in the household or friends or even children who were into cycling actually provided that support for uh, women to take that up. Um, and also for those women who could no longer cycle or who could no longer swim or run, etc. That's when they also took it up. 
and of course grandchildren. So June at 76, um, the grandkids that are back are alive to once again accompany them. So I won't go into this bit, I'll just rush to the conclusion. I suppose what, what I think is important about tracking these, these histories is the fact that in some of our, in some of um, the literature we have, and I'm thinking here about work of Jan Garrard um, from Australia, is that we have this notion that there's a particular group of women who will cycle and there's a whole lot that won't. And so we need to put in place things that will help those whole lot of others get into cycling. But I think perhaps we might come up with some different solutions if we actually start to think, well, there's women who cycle, there's a whole lot of women out there who cycle at different moments in their lives for different reasons, under different circumstances, and maybe we need to actually think about how, um, how we tack into, well, you have cycled in the past, how about coming back to it? And so that has been a message for those who want to promote cycling amongst women. Um, and of course, bringing to the fore that, you know, women don't have essential characteristics about, you know, how they practice cycling and all the rest of it. But there's, they do different types of cycling at different life moments. Um, 